News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Summer job is critical for students, whether it's a high school student or post-secondary student. It's a critical time for them to make some money to help them get through the school year. But once again this year, the uncertainty of what's happening, the lockdowns, all of that is impacting those summer job prospects for so many young Canadians. So personal finance expert Rubina Ahmed Hawk joins us now to discuss how this will affect all those, especially post-secondary students out there. Rubina, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I know there's a lot of jobs right now out there available with that Canada Jobs Grant, but I guess it's going to be tough knowing if people are going to have jobs available. The student market this year is probably just as bleak as it was uh, last year. Students I spoke to are saying that they are a little bit more optimistic because obviously we have been able to learn from the pandemic and now companies can understand how they can actually have young people in uh, their offices, working virtually or online or however they're going to do it um, safely. Uh, But still, compared to what you normally see at this time, young people working not just in those typical industries like restaurant, hospitality, tourism, which we know have been decimated during the pandemic, but a lot of work placements where they gain these experiences, make connections, build their network that help them after graduation. Usually, if you have a co-op in a big engineering firm, for an example, say that you're an engineering student, chances are they'll probably hire you once you graduate if if you made a good impression and made good connections there. Right. So like what can they do then? Or some companies I noticed are doing this, but it is like remotely. And that's so hard to make those connections that way. That This is the problem, right? Uh, most of the, the students I spoke to, I spoke to a number at the University of Calgary, and uh, he is an economics major. And last year, he was telling me that he did have a really good summer placement secured. And that summer placement was then cut by one month because the pandemic was declared. The company didn't know how to, you know, sort of manage interns in the office. And then when it did finally happen, it was online. And his worry is, is that, you know, just like it is with anything, when you meet somebody in person, it's a completely different experience. Um, and you, you just don't get that when you're shop, when you're, when you're shopping, when you're, when you're working online. <laughs> I mean, this has been the same thing for us who have been working from home. I mean, a lot of us, um, are feeling anxious about when we go back into the office, how we're going to feel about being face to face again. So is there something students can do then? Or are they just going to have to wait? Like what options do they have? So the, there was money uh, announced in the federal budget for students. Uh, so I definitely think that students should look into what government options are available, not just federally, but provincially. Um, and also, you know, if you did get an offer online, I would still take it. It's still experience. You're still getting your name in front of the right people. I wouldn't discount a job only because it is online. And the reality is, is that more than likely after the pandemic, most of us are going to be in a hybrid job situation where we'll be working part time from home and part time in an office if that's the kind of job that you do. So you might as well get used to that kind of environment because that right. looks like is going to be the future. So I would highly recommend, you know, continue to do all the same sort of job search, searching things that you would do as as a young person. Um, Take whatever job that it does become available and uh, don't discount something just because it's online. Is it also helpful, Rubina, maybe to just keep up the contact, right? Just keep up the discussion or keep in contact with potential jobs just so that they still recognize your name and they know who you are. 
Absolutely. Last year, what happened with a lot of young people is they took the CERB because you had to be 15 or older to take the CERB and had to make $5,000 in the previous year. And for mo many students, they are able to make that kind of money over the summer. And so the CERB, even though it may financially be helping you, although many students said I can make a lot more money working in my, my, you know, my student job than I can, uh, than the $2,000 every four weeks you get from the CERB last year. Um, it, it, you don't make any connections. I mean, money is, you know, the, the money is there to help you with your day-to-day -day costs, maybe help you with your tuition fees in the, in the fall. Uh, but you're not actually building your career. You're not growing yourself. You're not learning anything. Um, so I would recommend that even if there are government supports available, if you can get the same money doing a job, I would do job because that's invaluable the experience you're going to get even you know if it's if it's partly at home or if it's not in the ideal situation that you pictured yourself doing that student job good advice Rabina thank you for your time on that this morning thank you so much for having me that's Rabina Ahmed Haq a personal finance expert with Global News talking about the uh, summer job situation for post-secondary students out there I did notice uh, because I have a child in this situation, so I have been looking into this myself. I did notice that the Canada Summer Jobs Bank is now out there and available. This is that summer jobs program that the federal government pitches in some money and then businesses have to, they sign up and they provide half the money. The federal government provides the other half of the money for a student to work for them for the summer. There are a lot of jobs in that jobs bank thing is, a lot of them, you know, you have to start applying right now. They start in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and I guess there is some uncertainty, as Rubina was saying, about whether they'll be, they won't be in person. They'll, you know, at least be virtual. But it is something if people want to start looking. And there's a huge variety out there available. Will it be enough, though, for all the students out there who will be looking for work this summer? That's the question. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Hi, my name's Leanne, calling in about the tips I learned from my mom. When you're cooking uh, lasagna, rolling up lasagna, or chicken cordon bleu, or any type of food that you need to bake, instead of using toothpicks, we use uh, spaghetti. So you take a long piece of spaghetti and break it in half and stick it in to hold the roll, and it will cook along with the food, and then you're going to be able to eat the whole thing as opposed to trying to pick out a toothpick. Leanne, genius. I love that. Never even thought of that before. Yes, it was, of course, the last day of our Mother's Day Mom Hacks contest. We've gotten so many great submissions. Our contributor, Raji Silhal, is with us this morning to talk about that. Hi, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Did you like that one? It was so good. I've got a long list now from all of our listeners of great right. mom hacks. I know. So uh, this is how this works. You still have today to do that. You have a couple hours left to do this. Uh, call our buzz line 604-331-2899. Give us your mom hack, your tip, your trick. Leave your name, your number. Maybe you'll be our qualifier today. And here's the thing. Once you're our qualifier, we're going to take all five qualifiers, put their name in the hat for the grand prize draw, which comes before the end of the show today. You could use a spa at home home kit couldn't you oh i could use two i could go on the saturday <laughs> and on the sunday <laughs> you know with mother's day on the weekend simmy i'm starting to hear people just asking now what should i get my mom what should i oh, do for my mom roger let's be honest <laughs> the person you're talking about is our producer greg who who says what should i get he wants to know what to get his wife for mother's day it's her first mother's day they just had a baby six weeks ago and he's asking us that like literally a day and a half before mother's day to be fair, he's probably a little sleep deprived 
and he's probably been working extra hard to keep mom happy. Oh, you really you're trying to you're really trying to get in here because you're the new person, right? You're really trying to suck up to the people who work here. <laughs> I'm just remembering I'm remembering um my husband's first Father's Day and it was the day after my daughter was born and I thought, "Oops, what do I do?" <laughs> uh, that, see, I had a Mother's Day. Today is actually my son's birthday. He turns 21 today. And wow. so his the year he was born, um, he Mother's Day was like the day we brought him home from the hospital. So I, I vividly remember that too. It can get a little crazy out there. What do you like for Mother's Day? Do you like the gifts? Do you like the attention? Do you like all that? Uh, to be honest, no. I like a clean house. So Thank if you. anyone wants to make brunch for me, that's fine. I'll eat it. I'll enjoy it. But please clean up after yourselves. I just don't want to clean up after anyone on Mother's Day. See, this is why I like you so much, Raj. I'm exactly the same way where I'm like, don't worry about the gifts. Get me a nice card or make me a nice card. And this is when the kids were little, obviously. But really, I don't want to do any work. Don't ask me what's for dinner. Don't ask me what I want for dinner. Just make something and then make sure the house is spotless afterwards. There There was one Mother's Day where we took my mom out for Mother's Day. And all of the young families, I could see that all the brunches were just, they were chaotic. And the mums were not relaxed. No, they are The mums were handling multiple requests and dealing with food on the floor. And it was just a mess. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to do that when I become a mom. <laughs> it is not relaxing. It is Now, I've always made fun of my husband because he kind of is Mr. Last Minute. Like one year for Mother's Day, I think. Um, and he's not listening, so I can do this because he's still sleeping. But he got me a microwave rice cooker that he found on the sale shelf at the local grocery store because no. he'd forgotten. I know. But I just kind of took it in stride because that's, I, I, you know, know what he's like. So I was like, all right, well, thanks very much. Here was the kicker, though, Raji. That was the single greatest rice cooker I've ever had in, in my almost 30 years of being married. I was like, I, and now because it broke eventually, and I was, I, I missed that rice cooker. It was just like a microwave plastic rice cooker and it was so great. Yeah. I'm at that age and stage in my life now where I would, I would appreciate something like that. I got a really nice um, electrical mixer to replace my last one. I got that for a birthday present and maybe 10 years ago, I would have said, what? That's not a birthday present. This time I was like, husband, you did right. Exactly. We get more more practical, right? So if you could have a choice then for Mother's Day, would you just want to be left alone? That's it? No, not left alone. No, I want my little cubs with me. I just don't need any presents from them. If they, yes, if they hand make me something or like, My husband comes up with something creative, which I think he has because my daughter has been spilling some uh, hints. And you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and share it with listeners because if you're very last minute, uh, this might help you out in a pinch. My husband's going to interview our little girls about mom, about their favorite memories with mom, what they like to do with mom. You know, it's just going to be on on our little phones and... uh, I'll probably watch it into the ground. <laughs> I love this. I was just, my mouth was hanging open because I thought this is a genius, low cost, highly sentimental, perfect idea for Mother's Day. Totally. Yeah. So I'm already excited to receive that. <laughs> Can you imagine if he did that every year though for you? And then you had, you know, later on like a whole long catalog of them every year talking about what they loved about you? Perfect. Already done. Thanks for the idea, Simi. I love this. It's too late for me, but I (laughs) I love this idea. It's a good question to ask people about like, what do you want if you're a mom, 
uh, and or, or if you're buying something for your mom, right? If you're the sons, husbands, dads out there, what do you do for that mom in your life? Do you buy them a present? Do they want a present? Do you buy them flowers? Like, how do you do? You take them for brunch, and if you're a mom, do you want that? Right? Do you know? Do you know, Simi, what we did for my mom because we were a family of seven, so five kids. Can oh, you imagine? No. Um, our rule on Mother's Day was do not, and we gave each other just the sharpest side eye if anyone dare even encroach on mom's peace that day. So no, you, you know fighting, no disagreeing about anything. In fact, we'd be the opposite. Everyone would just be very sweet and kind. That would make me highly suspicious as a mother. (laughs) Oh, yeah. She she would be suspicious. And we couldn't wait for the day to expire so that we could be ourselves Uh, again. (laughs) The problem with little kids is you get it all stored up. And then the next day, you're just like, hell on wheels. Right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is Mornings with Simi. Right, I've been reading about the story the last couple of days. I'm fascinated by it. You probably heard about it. This is the debris from a Chinese rocket that's expected to fall back to Earth this weekend. But here's the kicker. It's an uncontrolled re-entry. What does that mean? There's an undirected dive into the atmosphere and they don't know what's going to happen. Let's find out more about this. Greg Pallone's back with us now, a Space Coast reporter for Spectrum News 13 in Brevard County, Florida, who covers rocket launches and space travel. Hey, Greg, thanks for being back with us. Thanks so much, Sammy. Yeah, we'll see what happens with this thing. Um, you know, you, you said uncontrolled. Uh, they have no control of this first stage of this very large rocket, 100 foot tall, 22 tons, um, 10 story, uh, really the size of a 10 story building that's going to be coming back. And Typically, these uh, first stages of these rockets don't actually reach orbit. They usually come come back um, and land in the ocean without actually achieving orbit. So this is a, a rare situation, but uh, certainly something uh, people are watching. And, uh, you know, the old saying goes, at least the Earth uh, is three-quarters uh, water uh, and not land because the odds are it's going to land in the ocean. But it sure is going to be interesting to follow this and see just how much of this uh, large right. rocket actually burns up in the atmosphere and what doesn't. Greg, what happened here? Like, how how was this allowed to come back in this fashion? Well, you know, I, I think it was an error on the Chinese. Uh, you know, usually these rockets uh, in, and the ones we see here on the Space Coast and, and really around the world, they, they don't, uh, the, the, that stage, the first stage, which actually propels the second stage of the rocket and whatever payload they have on top, they don't actually achieve orbit. But in this case, it actually did. So a miscalculation on the uh, Chinese part uh, for, you know, for this rocket actually getting up there and being in this uh, situation now and them having essentially a dead rocket part uh, on their hands, not able to control it. So, uh, again, this is not intentional, not something they meant to do, but uh, hopefully it'll land uh, in the ocean uh, and uh, not uh, in any uh, populated areas on land. Okay, so how much of this is going to burn up on reentry, and are any plans being made to deal with it if it's too big? You know, a- again, the Chinese are, are, are tight-lipped about this situation, and it's unclear. I mean, it's a huge rocket, 100 foot tall, the size of a 10-story building. So we'll just have to see how much of it uh, actually burns up in the atmosphere. If it goes fast enough and plows through the atmosphere, uh, it could be a very significant piece of it that uh, comes back uh, to to crash land or crash ocean, however you want to put it, uh, wherever it decides to do that. And, uh, you know, they'll be able to kind of track it, but it's going to be a last-minute thing as the orbit continues to decay for this rocket and and just how fast it will go through the atmosphere. Again, uh, when you're talking about orbit, it's moving at 17,500 miles an hour. 
Um, that is how fast the International Space Station is going around the Earth, too. So we'll see just how fast its orbit decays um, and just how much of this rocket actually gets burned up in the atmosphere or doesn't. How Has anything like this ever happened before, Greg? Yeah, there was an issue they had, I think, about 20, 30 years ago. The Chinese uh, launched um, a rocket, and uh, they had a similar situation, um, but it, it actually crashed in the ocean, so it wasn't a problem. Um, so, you know, the odds are with with uh, the Earth being, you know, more, overwhelmingly more water than land um, that it will hit the ocean, but you're just going to have to watch it. And, uh, you know, again, the Chinese... Uh, they're not exactly uh, communicating uh, exactly what they their intentions are or what they might be able to do. Um, so we'll have to see. But, um, again, this was a um, – the previous was uh, about 30 years ago, and, and fortunately that landed in the ocean. It wasn't a problem, but we'll just right. have to see on this one. So when is this supposed to happen? They can't predict that either. What? <laughs> uh, simply because uh, they don't have a way to track it. It's dead. They don't have a way to control it. So they're just having to monitor monitor it, see how quickly uh, the orbit of this huge rocket de- decays, um, and then the impact that it will have as it goes through the atmosphere, burning up, and just how much. And then they'll have to figure out, if it breaks apart, how many parts will land and where will they land and that type of thing. So this is a... Kind of like uh, you, you wish you were Nostradamus in this situation, but uh, there's okay. really no way to call it right now. Well, it'll keep you busy for the weekend. Greg, thanks for your time. You're welcome, Cindy. Take care. That's Greg Pillow Space Coast reporter for Spectrum News 13 in Brevard County, Florida. He covers rocket launches and space travel. This one's a bit scary, right? It's supposed to happen this weekend, but not a lot of details, as Greg just pointed out, about this Chinese rocket that's falling back to Earth in an uncontrolled re-entry, and they don't know where it's going to end up. U.S. also saying uh, yesterday that they're watching the path of the object, but they don't have any plans right now to get involved and shoot it down or anything like that. But boy, lots of chatter about that this weekend. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, on Wednesday afternoon, you probably took a look at your cell phone and went, what the heck is this? It was a test of the province's emergency alert system. So you thought, oh, okay, well, we must be getting close to using this. Well, we're still a few years away before being able to count on that as an early warning system in the case of something like an earthquake. So we thought, let's find out more about this. We know we're in the process of developing an earthquake early warning system, maybe giving us just a crucial, even like 15, 30 second opportunity to get ourselves to a safe place. That's crucial seconds, right? Could save lives. But let's find out how that progress is going. Joining us now is Alison Burden, earthquake seismologist with Natural Resources Canada. Alison, thank you for being here. Hello, Allison. Hello, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Okay, so how close are we? Like, are we still working on this earthquake warning system? Yes, we are. Um, We're in the process of acquiring the equipment that will be installed at a few hundred stations around Canada. So it's going to take a little while to get those in, but we um, expect to be fully operational by uh, 2024. Now, how accurate is this, and how much time would this potentially give us in the case of an earthquake? Well, it really depends on um, how close you are to the earthquake. The closer you are, the less warning time you're going to get before those strong waves get to you because they're propagating out from that earthquake. So if you're close to it, you could actually get no warning time if you're really, really close to the epicenter. But most people will get, say, tenths 
of seconds of warning, seconds to tens of seconds. And even with five seconds of warning, you can actually do a lot in that time to make yourself safe. Right. I was wondering about that because like 10 seconds doesn't sound like very much, Allison. but what can somebody do in that time? Like if they get that warning, the next obviously 10 seconds are crucial. What should we do? Well, this is the thing. I mean, we want people to think about this before it happens. And, and we encourage people to practice, you know, like we have the shakeout earthquake drill every year because we don't want people running out of the building. We, this is not for evacuation. This is to get into the safe space. So to drop, cover and hold on. Get underneath something that can protect you from falling debris. And if you cannot get underneath something in the room that you're in, get to an interior corner, squat down and cover your head and neck. Whatever happened to like stand in a doorway? We don't encourage that anymore, partly because a lot of um, doors are not structural anymore, and also because the door within that doorway can slam very violently in an earthquake. Okay, that's good to know, because I remember growing up being taught that, so things have changed. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) things have changed. What are we learning about how earthquakes actually come about? Like, are, Are we getting to a point where we can predict them? Sadly, no. Um, we cannot yet predict earthquakes. And this is why the earthquake early warning system is really important. I mean, we've got a good building code. We educate people on what to do, that drop, cover, and hold on. And this is another step in that direction. This gives you those those valuable seconds. Um, I don't know if within my career, um, we will be able to actually tell you tomorrow there will be an earthquake. But for now, it's going to be seconds. And even that can make a huge difference. Where do you think it's most important to get this system up and running? Well, we're starting in BC for obvious reasons. We have the highest hazard along our coast and, and, and very substantial risk. So this means that, you know, there, there's a likelihood of an earthquake, but also that it could cause a lot of damage because there's a lot of building, there are a lot of people. So that's what we want to protect. So we're starting with the BC coast, uh, starting in the, the lower mainland of Vancouver Island area and then working way north. We're also going to be um shortly um, installing along the Ottawa River Valley and the St. Lawrence Seaway, because that's another region that has high hazard. Right. I've been hearing my whole life, Alison, that, you know, we're long overdue for an earthquake. What is that situation? Well, we're still, I wouldn't say we're overdue, but we're certainly in a period where you could expect one to occur. Um, A lot of people have been so lulled into a false sense of security because we haven't had anything all that large in the last few decades. But if you looked at the first half of the 20th century, there were several quite substantial earthquakes within that period of time. So uh, we do expect large earthquakes to happen. They will definitely happen in this region. So do we know the type of earthquake that like, we're most at risk for here? Yeah, there, well, there are three main types of earthquakes in this region. Of course, everyone thinks of the big one, that mega thrust earthquake along the Cascadia subduction zone. That's the one where it's pretty dramatic. It impacts a huge region. It's going to be about a magnitude nine, so three to five minutes of strong shaking and a tsunami. However, you're more likely to experience the other two types. There's one type that is um, within the the crust, within the North American plate. That's the one we're all living on. Um, And then also they can happen within the subducting one of Fuca plate as it pushes down into the mantle beneath us. So they can happen in those two different areas. Um, If you think of the... The Squally earthquake that happened down near Olympia in 2001, that was within that subducting plate. I remember that. Okay. Uh, though, though you mentioned tsunami there. Is this alert system then also like a tsunami warning alert system? No, um, this, this system is not for tsunami, although there is a relation. A lot of the data that we gather does go into the tsunami um, alerting system. 
and it, which will alert you separately. Really, that alerting system is mostly for earthquakes that you don't feel. They're too far away for you to feel. Uh, for our region, when you have a major earthquake, um, if, it's, if it's strong enough that it's difficult to stand or the shaking lasts more than a minute, it's strong enough that it could have triggered an earthquake, uh, sorry, a tsunami. So just assume that's going to be the case. And if you're by the, by the, the water, by the coast, um, get to high ground. I mean, if you're, if you're at Tofino, look for Long Beach for the weekend, you need to get to high ground very quickly because that wave could come in within 15 to 20 minutes. So you're not waiting for an alarm. Right. You're, you're just getting to high ground. It's so tricky, though, isn't it, Alison? Like when it comes to giving out these emergency alerts and pushing them to people's cell phones, I guess there's a balance. You don't want to do too many because you don't want people to start tuning them out. Exactly. So we have to we have to be very careful in how we set up the system and, and choose the thresholds wisely. Um, when they instigated the system down in California, they did so just a few months before the Ridgecrest earthquake sequence happened. And um, it was interesting because some people who felt the earthquake, but it wasn't a threatening kind of feel. They just sort of felt the movement. They felt they should have received an alert, but they didn't because it wasn't going to be harmful to them. So the, the threshold had been set too high for the culture of that, that region. People want to get an alert if they are going to feel something. Um, we'll probably use a similar alerting threshold as, as Washington because uh, we're going to be sharing data across the border. We want to make sure the messaging is consistent. And we're also learning by how they're rolling out their systems and what people expect from there. All right. So there's a lot more learning for us coming up. Uh, Allison, thank you yes. so much for your time. You're welcome. Anytime. That's Take care. Allison Bird, earthquake seismologist with Natural Resources Canada. I just learned so much there. All because of that emergency alert that you received on your cell phone this week. It was Wednesday afternoon. It was two o'clock. Uh, but you can't send out too many of those, right? Because you don't want people to just go, oh, okay, another emergency alert. They're just testing the system because you want people to look at it when they actually need to. We're still a couple of years away before being able to count on that early warning system in the case of an earthquake, but that is what they are working toward. This is Mornings with Simi. Reporters have been asking for it to no avail, but it turns out the BC Centre for Disease Control actually has a lot more information than it's been handing out. A couple of internal reports from the BC CDC have been linked, or leaked, I should say, to the Vancouver Sun. And these reports are four times longer than the weekly reports the centre publishes. And they contain everything from the number of vaccinations at the neighborhood level to breakdowns about variants of concern and more. So let's find out more about this. Joining us now is Nathan Griffiths, the Vancouver Sun journalist who's been writing about this. Nathan, thank you for joining us. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Were you surprised by the amount of detail that we're in the, that's in these reports? Um. <laughs> Yeah, I would. I, yes, uh, yes and no. I guess. I mean, I we know that they have a lot of data that they're not making available for for many good reasons. Obviously, there's lots of data that they can't make available for privacy reasons. Um, I was a, a little bit surprised to see, though, that you know some of those charts and maps were basically exactly what you know researchers and journalists and others have been asking about getting them getting their hands on for quite a while now. So right. it was a bit surprising to see that it's already there. And why, so up until now, when reporters have asked for this, what has the response been? Well, I think one of the major issues that they, or major concerns that they have is uh, 
One is around stigmatization, around privacy concerns. They don't, they want to be, they've been very cautious about uh, drawing any, uh, I guess, undue or unwanted attention to particular neighborhoods. Uh, and that's, I think, a, a very fair, very valid concern. I mean, you know, we've seen, for instance, so Surrey has been very high, has had very high numbers. And we can see in some of those maps, they can see very down to the neighborhood level, like what there's been trouble getting people vaccinated and the numbers have still been very high there. And I think there's a legitimate concern about kind of stigmatizing people in the community. Um, we know that that's a larger concern for health authorities in general, is that if people are communities feel stigmatized, then it's, it's tough for health authorities to, to reach out to them and to get them to, right. to connect with them. Right, guess, but, yeah. but also if they don't tell the media about that, then we can't put the message out that people in that neighborhood need to pay attention, right, and get vaccinated. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it's yeah. like a catch twenty two. It, it is. It's it's a it's a fine line, um, and I would I feel like after as much time has gone past now, or as much time has passed now that you know it, since we've been asking for it, research has been asking about this data. There's been examples like in Toronto, for example, where they have neighborhood li- level data released regularly. And that, in fact, uh, pushed, you know, when they were looking at that data, the Ontario Science Table said, hey, you know, we're, we're seeing a hard hit community that's not getting the vaccinations that they need. And that, you know, pushed for change to happen. So there's definitely it's a it's sort of a double edged sword there. We want to p- protect people's privacy, but we right. also want to make sure that we're not, you know, leaving them exposed to, to the dangers right. from the um the coronavirus. So Nathan, tell us then, when you look at all this information, what did it tell us about what is going on in some of these neighborhoods? Like what are some of the harder hit neighborhoods? I mean, it's the, it's the neighborhoods that we have uh, been talking about previously. It's have frontline workers uh, working in jobs that face higher risk of exposure, working in jobs that are probably lower paid and don't, don't allow them where they don't have uh, easy access to paid time off. Uh, people living in neighborhoods where you've got large uh, households or congregate living, however you want to, however you want to phrase that. Same like we saw in Whistler, like we see up at um, the Site C Dam, they had the outbreak. I mean, these are all we we know that these are the these are the things that drive transmission, right? Yeah, everyone knows. You know, Dr. Bonnie Henry talks about it all the time. I guess the question just is like if we know uh, we know that that we have this data at that this granularity, uh, we know what the issues are. The question that I would have is like, where's the policy that's addressing that? Yeah, right? that's you know, what I thought too. Seen, yeah, I mean, we've seen in Surrey like it's been a long time. Surrey's been really, really struggling. Uh, parts of Surrey have been really, really struggling with the coronavirus for quite a long time, and it, I can't help but feel like. If we have all this data and we we see it and we know what's happening and we know what the causes are, like there's there's a there's a policy failure of some kind. I feel like that needs to be addressed. To yeah, getting people vaccinated more and getting those. And I know they're working on that right now. I mean, Doctor Henry talking about it, talking about it yesterday in the, in the presser uh, press um, conference, but it's it's been a going on for quite a while. So Yeah, but they, that's wonder. exactly it. I was thinking, looking at this detailed information in your story in the Vancouver Sun, I thought, listen, they've known clearly for a long time that this very <clears throat> large part of Surrey has a huge problem with transmission mm-hmm. because there's more frontline workers there. There's just more mm-hmm. people who obviously have this problem. 
Why? Where is the policy? And they could have been targeting this neighborhood like six weeks ago and having a different mm. outcome. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I definitely wondered about that. I mean, they, they they're juggling a lot of balls, I guess. But it it certainly seems like uh, certainly seems like it needed to be a bit more of a priority than uh, than it has been. I mean, we know they can do it because they they go go up to Whistler, they go into exactly. that's a smaller community, obviously. Uh, much easier, I guess, to to address outbreaks and vaccinations in a community of a few thousand than it is a you know community of a few hundred thousand. But um, I mean, we're we're capable of doing it. Like there was very talented people at the and the health authorities, and I, you know, I'm confident that they know they know how to do it. We just need to get them. Uh, I guess get the priority shifted so that they get that. Address. Exactly. What is it telling us about vaccinations? What, what did you find interesting about that information? Um, there's quite a variety, like, uh, geographic variety in terms of where vaccinations are going. Age-wise, it's pretty much, the story looks pretty much what we've been seeing. You know, older folks, the the age-based vaccination plan has been running along, looks pretty smoothly, um, and they're moving into lower age brackets, moving into more, uh, hopefully focusing more on higher priority groups based on metrics other than age um but geographically it's really it's quite a range within cities within uh within neighborhoods you can see quite a oops, my apologies. Uh, you can see quite a quite a range um within cities about different neighborhoods having you know my neighborhood has a pretty low vaccination rate but a few blocks over it looks like it's pretty high yeah that might be that might be artifacts of the data i'm not sure but just brings up so many questions. Uh, Nathan, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's Take Nathan Griffiths, a journalist with the Vancouver Sun. Check out his story. It's in VancouverSun.com. Essentially, what they got was a, a pair of internal reports leaked to them from the BC Center for Disease Control that pretty much highlights that the health authorities are really only releasing a fraction of their available COVID-19 information to the public. And this isn't just like to reporters who ask, right? Researchers at institutions like UBC and SFU and elsewhere have been saying, can we get some more data, please, so we can help you break down what is going on and study the pandemic? And they also have not been able to access this information. And it shows, and this is to me the thing that bothered me the most, is it showed quite clearly neighborhoods where there is a huge concern with transmission. We are talking like some neighborhoods uh, in some parts of Surrey where transmission was like 20% over the last few weeks. And you think, if we knew this, why haven't we gone hard at those neighborhoods? Why haven't we told uh, people and said, listen, in this neighborhood, you got to be careful. You got to look up. We got to help the people in this neighborhood. So why hasn't this information helped to shape policy more dramatically? Obviously, these are questions that are going to get asked of the health minister, of public health officials. But uh, for now, just check out that story at the Vancouver Sun, and it will lead to a lot of questions for our health officials, which we'll tell you more about later today. This is Mornings with Simi. Song just makes you want to sing along, doesn't it? Uh, let's talk about the great outdoors because we know that during this pandemic, it's become pretty busy out there. People just looking for some open space, right? Just something to do out there. No surprise, camping numbers are way up from previous years. Raji Sohal, our contributor, is back with us to talk more about this. So, Raji, I don't think this is a surprise, right? It's busy out there. 
It's busier than it's ever been. The stats just show that uh, there's a lot of overuse on the trails and at campsites. We're seeing that a lot of them are just sold out. And um, yesterday we heard from listeners who cautioned, hey, careful about uh, sending people off into the backcountry because off the beaten path can become the beaten path. Yeah, that was fascinating to hear that, that there's like, they've got to make sure that they, whatever they take in, they take out and they look after things, which isn't always happening. Uh, Joining us now for more on this is Alan Lezai, who is a trail master at Ridge Meadows Outdoors Club. Alan, thanks for being with us this morning. You're welcome. So tell me, what do you see in the backcountry there? What kind of signs of overuse do you see? Well, the trails get get um, beaten up. They get uh, um, scuffed up and uh, makes them vulnerable to washing out um, during during rainfall. And uh, so the surfaces deteriorate, become rougher, and and uh, a little more dangerous to to uh, navigate. So, Alan, what does it look like for your volunteers to do trail rebuilding? What, is, what does trail rebuilding even entail? Well, we, um, we're not doing much trail rebuilding now. What we're doing is just trying to keep them open uh, as such. So, so we, um, we uh, clear encroaching brush and, and, uh, and then chainsaw off uh, storm falls. And then we clear sight lines between markers, add new markers, um, put up a few simple signs. Um, we, we try to fix drainage problems where, where lots of hikers will make real deep mud. And uh, we do a little bit of, we, we try to do some erosion control. Right. It, it sounds like you're doing a lot of work out there that people don't often realize. So what, what would you like people to know if they're new to the backcountry or thinking about heading out there, Alan? What do you want them to know? Well... I want them to be hiking within their ability to know where they're going in the first place, not just the name of a trail, but but where actually on the surface of the earth that trail is going to take them to. And, uh, yeah, and it does take an effort to... um, There there are a lot of complaints about the trail, and uh, it does take a lot of effort to maintain them. Do you... Is it a challenge keeping everybody safe, too, to do all this work and still go out there during COVID? Well, you know, I don't know if we'll be able to continue work in the summer when, when it gets really busy because it is very difficult to distance on the on the trails. Um, a lot of back, a lot of the backcountry trails are are single track, and if you get a, a group coming at you, um, it's really hard to squeeze to keep two or three meters apart as as they're passing, and they don't seem to have any patience. Um, to wait for us to finish a task before they go through. They just want, they, uh, we're a little bit of a pain in the butt for them. And oh. uh, for some people, right. uh, the vast majority are, are, they just say, thank you, thank you, thank you. So I, I have to, I ha- do have to say that. That sounds a little frustrating. Uh, a little Alan, fr- we've, Alan, we've heard people uh, that there are some people out there who are not following that golden rule of leave no trace. Have you, have you seen much of that? A lot, yes, yeah, and there, there are some some um, of our club members. They they um, they always uh, take a garbage bag with them when they go out, and and so they right. they pick up whatever they can fit in the garbage bag, and and then either tie onto their pack or put into their pack, and it, it gets to be really bad. Um, sometimes I get I guess people try 
to go out overnight camping, and and uh, they leave major um, items behind. Uh, we've we've even seen um, at least once um, where a whole camp sleeping bags, tent, what? and everything wow. has has been abandoned at at uh, Alder Flats and at Panorama Ridge. That is crazy. Um, Alan, thank you, though, for all the work that you and your group do out there. We really appreciate it, and thank you for your time this morning. Okay, you're welcome. That's, Glad to speak to you. That's Alan Lizay, backcountry trailmaster at Ridge Meadow Outdoors. Roger, can you believe that, that people would do that? It's kind of shocking. It and is. also, who do they think is going to pick up after them? I'm, uh, Alan's group is uh, actually struggling, I hear, for her volunteer retention during these COVID times. So... Just a reminder to everyone out there to please pick up after yourself. Good idea. And you can check out their work, Ridge Meadow Outdoors Club. You can find them online. Raji, thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we are going to be talking about our life sciences sector in BC. If you think, what is that? Well, you should know about it. There's a new report that's been commissioned by the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade that actually highlights this industry and says, we need to do a few things if we really want to ramp this up and protect this industry here in the province. Uh, Let's talk more about it. Wendy Helbert joins us now, the CEO of BC Life Sciences. Wendy, thanks for being here. Thanks very much for having me. First off, what is the life sciences sector and how big is it here in BC? So the life sciences sector is um, comprised of um, med tech, biotechnology companies, digital health companies, pharmaceutical companies, um, you know, people that make hips, ventilators, any sort of medications, and um, a number of academic and research institutions of which we have many in um, British Columbia. Okay, and how big is this here in BC? Uh, this sector employs 20, uh, approximately 20,000 people. There's about 2,000 companies and produces $5.4 billion in revenue for the province. Has that gotten even bigger, would you say, like during the pandemic? There's been a lot of focus on this particular industry too. Absolutely. Um, it's it's grown exponentially. Uh, the numbers that I just quoted were from 2018, and we saw a significant increase last year. Um, we also saw these companies, many of them are startups with less than um, 10 people and have been uh, looking for capital for a number of years. And we saw this sector bring in almost $2 billion of capital investment into these companies last year. Okay, so tell me about this report done with the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade then. What is it that you wanted to highlight? We wanted to highlight um, exactly what you said. A lot of people don't know what the life sciences sector or know that it, how important it is to uh, the Vancouver economy. We're actually the fastest growing life, sector, life sciences sector in Canada and probably one of the fastest growing sectors in British Columbia. So we wanted to give awareness about that. And then we also wanted to discuss some of the barriers that exist to growth and draw some attention to some of the recommendations that are included in the report so that we can grow the sector, create jobs, um, and uh, have everyone benefit from it. Okay, so what are some of those barriers? Some of the barriers are one that I talked about with respect to capital. Um, It is very hard to attract capital. The life sciences, uh, to grow a life sciences company can be quite complex and can take a bit more time than some other sectors. So we really need to create those incentives where um, people will invest. 
last week, the British Columbia government announced the NBC fund. That will certainly help because many uh, independent investors are looking to see institutional or government investors alongside them. The other is talent to scale companies. It's not unique to life sciences. It's unique to many of the innovation sectors that we don't have as much experienced talent that knows how to build companies. So we need to attract, develop, and most importantly, retain our talent that we have in British Columbia because there's so many opportunities. Right. How do we do that, though? Uh, We do that by there's some very innovative programs that are uh, coming out of our academic institutions where you see people getting joint business degrees and science degrees. Another is through incubator programs and mentorship programs. Life Sciences BC ran an investor readiness program um, over the last year where we matched companies with experienced business builders. And uh, they worked together for 16 weeks to really help those scientists get to a place where they could pitch their companies in a more cohesive manner to investors. So things like that are super important. Um, ensuring that, um, you know, that we, that we end up um, in, in what we're doing right now, which is creating those jobs that have people want to stay in British Columbia after they've graduated from academic institutions. So, so how, we're, how can you get the attention then of the provincial government? Like, what would you tell the government that you need to do and soon? So there's a couple of things in particular there. So we need to invest in more of these talent development programs and career development programs, in particular at the leadership level. We also, one of our biggest barriers is that we don't have enough wet lab space. So companies are stalled, company creation is stalled, and people being able to accelerate their companies are stalled because they can't continue their research because of a lack of lab space. So that's something we're in active discussions with the British Columbia about as well. And finally, um, we need to make sure that we are um, actually taking advantage of the innovation that we have in British Columbia. We have much innovation that we export that we don't actually absorb internally. So working with the healthcare system to see how we can make sure that we adopt this innovation that is coming forward that has the potential of significant um, savings both for the healthcare system and improving patient outcomes. So if you were like a younger person listening to this or somebody who has a child perhaps thinking, well, I don't know what I want to do in life, what should they study? Like what would lead them to a path to the life sciences? Well, the nice thing is that life sciences has, there's so many different career opportunities. So one, you could be a scientist, you could be a researcher, any one of the STEM areas, so science, technology, math, engineering. Um, We actually have a particular strength in British Columbia in biomedical engineering. So that's basically biology meeting engineering, which is a super exciting field. Um, But the other thing is any of the other business jobs exist, you know, to grow companies, be a CFO, be a communications person, a marketing person. It's a sector that's growing. It's never dull. Um, you know, if you're a curious person and like innovation, this is a fantastic sector to be in. Is there a place where people can go for more information? Absolutely. They can reach out to our website, www.lifesciencesbc.com. We actually have a job board on our website where our members will post uh, jobs that they're looking for, but also attend our events because that's the best way to learn about this sector. We're constantly profiling companies and um giving information about what's going on in the sector, um, what is what are some of the interesting things that are happening, um, what are some of the new innovations that are coming out, and it's a really, really exciting area to be in. Well, it's good stuff. Wendy, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you.